Thanks, Eric. Yes, I am Tim. I'm not Tim's son. Um, thank you. This is my third time speaking here in a year, so I don't know if it's third time, maybe he'll get it right now, third time the charm, or if it's three strikes and he's out, uh, but uh, we'll see. Um, but like I said, third time being here, excited to be here. I know some of you, when you heard my name, were like, no, and then, it's, and then I came up and you're like, yeah, <sighs> yeah, I know, I'm the energizer bunny on the stage. I have self-awareness. I, I do this a lot and quickly, but because I was thinking of you, I only had 10 cups of coffee this morning <laughs> as opposed to my normal 12, so hopefully I won't be pacing quite as quickly and as much, and if this is too distracting, come to third service where I'll be completely exhausted from doing this for two services, and I basically just hang on the table the entire time trying to stand upright. Um, but if you, uh, if you have your Bible, please open it to John chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. We're picking up where Greg left off. Um, if you have a Bible in the pew or the standard English Standard Version, we're going to be on page 887 today. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite scenes, uh, Jesus cleansing the temple. Um, growing up as a pastor's kid, uh, I had what we might call anger issues. Now, with my body frame, you know I didn't beat anybody up in my anger, but what I did was I raised my voice frequently. If I thought something was unjust or I wasn't being treated fairly or given the proper benefit of the doubt, I raised my voice. And I was at that age during that period of time where those janky WWJD bracelets and t-shirts were like the hip thing, right? Some of you are like, yeah, I remember that. Glad it's in the past. Um, but, you know, so people would tell me, because I'm a pastor's kid, and my teachers at school even knew this, they would say, now Tim, what would Jesus do? As if that's supposed to be like, oh, meek and mild, like a sheep before its shearer. No, this is, this is the passage I would respond with, like John chapter 2. You want me flipping tables or raising my voice? Your choice. And they would inevitably tell me to go to detention, and then I'd have to explain it once again to my parents. Um, but now, now that I'm older less young, maybe, um, and a bit wiser, and God has gotten control of my life. Um, I'm looking at this passage a little bit differently. You know the phrase, actions speak louder than words? No? 830 knew it. Okay. <laughs> They're the only ones. Um, well, anyway, there's a phrase out there, maybe, called actions speak louder than words. And sometimes that can be a detriment. Actions, yes, they speak louder than words, but that doesn't mean the words are not just as important. So today when we look at this passage, we're going to break it in, in kind of two scenes. The first one, Jesus cleansing the temple, what he did, and then the second one, um, I'll, just, I'll give it away, Jesus is the temple, what he says. Because the reason he does what he does is explained and given depth and clarity by what he says. And so I want to kind of set that up. So we kind of understand where we're going, and then before we go any further, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you with a pause. Lord, we, we've welcomed you with praise. We want our praise to be your anthem. Lord, I just pray that this time would be a holy time, Lord, a time of your truth being at the forefront 
and my mannerisms being in the background. Lord, may this be a time of, of simply engaging the depth of who you are and what you've done and who you've called us to be and are calling us to do. Lord, I pray that this wouldn't simply be a tick of a box, did Sunday morning service, Lord, but that it would be a springboard in a life of service and it would be a turning point toward a life lived for you. It's in your name we pray. So we're going to start John chapter 2, picking up right where we left off last week. Chapter 2, verse 13. It says this, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So we have this opening scene where Jesus comes to the temple. But in context, we need to understand why is Jesus coming to the temple? He doesn't just simply hang out with his disciples and go, yo, let's go to Jerusalem and chill at the temple. He doesn't just rock up because he's a tourist, get off the van and come in and say, what's going on here at the temple? There is a very important reason Jesus is even in Jerusalem. There's a very central to Israel's identity reason that we're here. It's called the Passover. It says, now the Passover was of the Jews was at hand, so Jesus goes to Jerusalem. The motivation for going to Jerusalem is rooted in the feast and the, and the celebration that's at the core and central identity of who Israel is. In Exodus chapter 12, you can see um, the, the entire explanation for what the Passover is, but I'm just going to kind of give you a brief overview. I'm going to set it in context. So, in the beginning, God created the world. He created three expanses, the heavens, the sky, and the earth, the heavens, the earth, and the water, and then he filled them in the following three days, and on the seventh day, God rested in victory over his creation, and what he'd created is perfectly innocent. And in that creation, he had put humans, made in his image to be the priestly caretakers for his creation, to be the example and his influence over what he'd made. But being as we are all still tenants who want to be owners, and all of that sin is rooted in Adam and Eve, they broke the relationship when they tried to take control of the situation to be equal to God. For the first time, the wolf stirred and the sheep felt fear. For the first time, the lion roared and the zebra became prey. In that one act, all of creation was hurled into shattered oblivion and brokenness, separated from its creator. But God didn't leave it there. God had a plan. And he set this plan in motion. And that plan was going to be, he was going to call a people from among the nations. He was going to set them apart. And from that people would come the hope and the fulfillment of everything. Creating then a way that creation could be renewed, redeemed, and made right again. And brought back to God in an intimacy even greater than what we experienced and see in the garden. 
Now, these people come from a lot of broken, messed up individuals. And if God can call people out of them, he can do great things through you too. So he calls these people, but the, the pinnacle of their calling, you have Abram who wanders, doesn't settle, has, has Isaac, I'm sorry, and then, and then from that flows. And then eventually they find themselves because of famine and disobedience in Egypt, delivered by a guy named Joseph. Now, they didn't just stay there until the famine was over and returned to their land. They stayed there long enough that a pharaoh came along who didn't know, remember, wasn't taught, and didn't care about Joseph. And he has fear of the Israelites. They enslave them. They force them to live under horrendous, terrible, unlivable conditions. And after years of this, Israel cries out, for deliverance. And so God calls a guy who was an Israelite, delivered from a slaughter, raised in the Pharaoh's household, killed somebody, ran away to the desert for 40 years. Now he brings him back to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And from that point on, this epic story kicks off where God systematically dismantles and destroys every realm of the Egyptian gods. And it comes down to the final, Pharaoh himself still with the hard heart, refusing to let Israel go, God sends Moses, and Moses says, I'm going to send the angel of death. And he's going to come through, and from the Pharaoh's house to the least among the slaves who are Egyptian, the firstborn will be killed. That you may know there is a distinct difference between Israel and Egypt. And he tells the Israelites to take the blood of the pure lamb, spread it over the door of the household. And when the angel of death comes over, when he sees the mark of the blood, he will pass over the house. And so we see this story in, in Exodus chapter 12. And there are three distinct char characteristics, I can talk, English is my first language, of the Passover that I want us to understand. The first one is found in verse 14. He says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. This shall be a memorial. This is not like Huntington Beach July 4th memorial, okay? This is a day of solemn remembrance. This is the day of when the child later on throughout history asks the father, in Israelite society, hey, what makes us special? Why are we considered the chosen ones? He can say, we were once slaves in a foreign land and Yahweh delivered us. It's a day of solemn remembrance, remembering we were nothing, but through God's act became something. So it's a day of solemn remembrance. Second, we see in Exodus chapter 12, verse 27, you shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over, see where we get it, the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. So second, it's a day of worship. We give esteem and praise and honor and reverence to God for what he's done. And finally, we see in the last verse of Exodus chapter 12, on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So this all finds itself. Why do we worship? What are we remembering? This is a day of deliverance. The focus of the feast of the Passover is on the deliverance of Israel by their God. 
This is supposed to be a solemn day. This is supposed to be a day of remembering they were nothing, made something by a great act of God, taking down the world power of the day to make them a great nation. But we see an issue here. The day of Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went to Jerusalem and the scene he comes in on. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. The day of Passover by the the people in the temple and Jerusalem was turned into the day of prophet. Prophet, not prophet. I'm a good Southern Baptist at heart, so I will always have some form of alliteration in my sermon. There you go. Passover prophet. But this is the this is the issue. They've they've taken people's forgiveness, people's deliverance, and they've made it transactions. When you go to the temple, you go to the temple to engage God, to experience the deliverance, to be reminded of how great he is and what he's doing. And you take, you take an ox for a specific sacrifice. You take sheep for specific sacrifices. If you don't have a ton of money, you take doves and birds and such for specific sacrifices. You go there to make sacrifices. You don't go there to purchase sacrifices. When we say you go to the temple to take care of business, this is not the business you're supposed to take care of. They have turned forgiveness and deliverance into financial transaction. And so Jesus' response to this, I think, is the perfect response. And this is something we need to understand. Jesus does not respond in emotion. He doesn't let his emotions control him. Jesus responds in truth and in the spirit of God. And we use this verbiage, we say he cleansed the temple. In verse 15, in making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. This is one verse in scripture that is quite the epic picture. Okay, how many of you have seen an ox? Yeah, Southern California. We have petting zoos. You can go look. Like, I'm from Northern California, the land of fresh air and clean water, or clean air and fresh water. It just it depends how you look at it. You're welcome. But the thing is, oxen, they're not small. Oxen are huge animals. Sheep are not quiet. The temple is filled with this. I, I thought as an illustration, I've got like a coffee tin can that I put my spare change in. I thought about bringing it and dumping it out just so you could hear the sheer noise of that. And then I realized I would have to pick that up. And so I'm welcome because I'm not going to do that. But this is a truly epic scene. And I wonder when it kicks off, it, what exactly it looks like. like. Does Jesus just quietly go off and find some cords and start braiding a whip? And his disciples are like, Jesus what are you doing? Or is he like, this isn't okay. I'm going to take care of business. And they're like, oh, I don't know, Jesus. Like, I don't know if you want to do that. Or is he like Luke Skywalker in The Empire Strikes Back and he just like puts his hand out and these cords just go boom into his hand, right? And he's got a whip. I don't know. Bible doesn't care about it. That's not the important point. But I just love the epic scene of Jesus just rocking up into Jerusalem, making a whip out of cords and cleansing the entire temple. And I use the word cleanse on purpose, and this is why. Like I said, Jesus isn't controlled by his emotions. He doesn't see this house of transactions occur 
and say, you know what? No, this isn't right. My dad deserves better than this. Make a cord and go in. He is fulfilling scripture even in this epic moment when he is so angry. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 and 3, this is prophecy at least 400 years before this event happens. And he says, behold, I send my messenger. He'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. He'll sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they'll bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. You see, Jesus doesn't just get emotional and clean the temple. When he sees this, this is what he's thinking. Jesus comes and he brings the covenant in which we find delight. The covenant that God promised he would write on our very hearts. And he comes with this kind of power. You read on that the disciples upon seeing this scene in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for his house will consume me. So they're remembering this passage from Psalm chapter 69, verse 9. And here's a golden nugget, not in the notes, but I shared this with 830, so I figured I'd be fair and let you guys know too. When you read like a snippet of a passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament, look it up in the Old Testament. Because oftentimes the, the context of that half a verse or phrase or sentence only serves to enlighten and enhance what's actually going on. For instance, in Psalm chapter 69, let me flip there. We see in verse 9, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. It, this is a psalm from David to God saying, Save me, deliver me from the hands of my enemies. But as you read on, so that's, that's cool. That's what his disciples remember. But in verse 30 of Psalm 69, it starts with, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, huh, or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they'll be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy, does not despise his own people who are prisoners. So there's this understanding now that God delights more in a humble offering of oneself in praise than the blood of bulls or oxen. So to the person who doesn't have the money to go to the temple and purchase these things for sacrifice, there's encouragement found that what you need to perfectly engage God is you. And so Jesus, remembering this, is consumed with the zeal for the temple of God. But that's not where it stops. That's not the only reason Jesus has zeal. This is it, okay? This is why Jesus gets so upset at what they've done to the temple. Because Jesus knows he is the temple. Jesus doesn't want anything getting in the way or distracting from an honest, open-hearted, truthful engagement of the presence of God, knowing that as we know now as Christians, it is in Christ to whom you go for your honest, truthful engagement of the presence and the spirit of God. Christ himself is the temple. And we read this in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? 
Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. So these Jews demand, demand a sign of divine authority. This is the ultimate Jewish, who do you think you are? What kind of authority do you think you have to come into our temple? We're the sons of Levi. We're the ones who've studied the ancient texts. You're some guy from some hick area of Galilee coming in and cleansing the temple. What kind of sign can you give us to show your divine authority? A few years ago, I was reading a book about um, Mary, Queen of Scots, like you do. Um, we've all read that, right? Like, we know we care about, no? Okay. Um, well, there's a scene you probably don't know then or care. Um, she was married originally at like the age of 10 to the Prince of France. That's your first problem, right? France. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> As a cycling fan, I'm a huge fan of France. Um, one, like three weeks out of the year. But, um, so she's married to the, the Prince of France, and there's this scene where they're, um, they're like having fun, and they're being kids, but they're royalty, so they shouldn't act like kids. They should only ever act like adults. And um, they're, they're having fun, and they're getting a little ruckus. And so some lady like pokes her head in the room, and she's like, hey, calm down, chill out. And Mary, I love this, just, she goes like, who do you think you're talking to? I'm the princess of France. What kind of authority do you think you have? And the woman goes, that's cute, sweetheart. I'm the queen of France, right? <laughs> so it's like the one person who can pull the authority card pulls it. And I just love that imagery here when the Jews, the sons of Levi, the ones with the theological importance and, and brevity, they go, who do you think you are? And Jesus is just standing there going, the one guy who could pull authority card on you. That's, I'm God. You're welcome. Like, clean up my house, right? But so the Jews demand this, this sign and Jesus responds, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. This is way better than Babe Ruth pointing a bat, guys, right? Babe Ruth called a shot, that's cool. Jesus, this is the most epic called shot in all of history. The Greek imperative here, I know I'm gonna kind of get kind of nerdy, but if the youth can handle it, you can too. Um, the Greek here is an imperative, but it can also be translated, instead of him telling them to destroy the temple, it can actually be translated in future tense. And so it would actually be understood more as, you will destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Now, have you ever heard the phrase, don't be so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly value? Have you heard that? Right? Flip that, okay? I'm telling you this. I'm standing on the stage. I'm telling you this. Don't be so earthly minded, you're of no heavenly value. Because when you're earthly minded, you do exactly what the Jews do in this image, in this picture. He calls his shot, says, destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? This called shot, this understanding, you will destroy this temple. And three days I'll raise it up again. Now, we don't know exactly how to count how long it took because we don't know exactly which reign and rule to begin the count in. And there were some breaks of, of building and stuff. The important thing to understand is, regardless, it took more than four decades to build this temple. It took forever to build this temple. And the Jews are standing here going, you think you can rebuild this? in three days. Later on, at his, at his 
fake trial in Matthew chapter 26, you read them bring this back up. He said he would rebuild the temple. He said destroy it and he'll rebuild it. So they remember it, but they don't fully understand it. Jesus, it says in the next verse, in verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. It is in the person of Christ that we find a real relationship, deliverance, forgiveness, and the presence of God himself. And Jesus knew this. You will destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Now, there's a cool observation to make here, and it's grammatical, so we're all going to be geeks together, okay? What pronoun does Jesus use? You will destroy this temple, and in three days, first person singular, right? Yeah, I will raise it up. Now, other areas in scripture and tradition attribute the resurrection to the Father. You following? You catching what I'm passing? You picking up what I'm putting down? Right? This is not an inconsistency here, okay? The resurrection in scripture and in history, tradition, are oftentimes relegated to the Father, the attributed. But here, Christ himself says, I will raise it up. So the Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead, is it the Father's or is it the Son's? Yes. Right? You wonder where Christians get this theology of the Trinity? The Bible. But Tim, it doesn't say Trinity explicitly. It doesn't have to. Some things you learn through prescription, a direct telling and some things you, you learn through observation. You just look at it and you can tell. This is not inconsistency. This is holy, divine, inspired, inerrant scripture telling us that Christ and God the Father are one and the same. It's pretty cool, right? That's what I'm talking about. All right. The one amen. Everyone else is going... Quit walking around so much. But this, this next bit here is really comforting to me. As a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ, this is comforting. In verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The disciples didn't really get it either. It took his death and his resurrection to fully comprehend the things he said. That's comforting to me because oftentimes I'll read something, I'll, I'll experience something and not really understand. Guys, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we have to view everything through the lens of the cross and the resurrection. That's how we need to look at life. So the disciples didn't really get it, but then when he'd been resurrected, and notice that, that's, never mind, that's passive, so that obviously shows another force acting on Trinity, hold that thought. But then there's another thing. When they'd remembered this, they believed the scriptures and the word that he had spoken. Christ's words have the same exact authority as the scripture, the Old Testament. Christ's teachings have just as much authority 
as the Old Testament. Christ, remember, says, I did not come to abolish the law, rather I came to fulfill it. Christ is the fulfillment of everything in the book before him and the source and the reasoning and the ultimate object of everything following. Tim, that's great. You look good today. You're not wearing that palm branch shirt, but so what? What's the point? This could have been a very good, eloquent, theological lecturer, but where does the rubber meet the road? So what? Jesus Christ is where you go to experience in fullness the presence, deliverance, and forgiveness of God. Don't muddy it up with distractions. What is God, what is Jesus turning on its head in your life? Because he's doing it so you can more ably and beneficially engage him and experience him in his fullness and not be distracted. I'm challenging you that maybe God is calling you to something vastly different, maybe the exact opposite of the American dream. Jesus loves you and has a great plan for your life. Maybe it's time we started allowing his love to be the definition of that and his great to be the definition of that because we've substituted what we understand love to be for Jesus loves you. And we've, under, we've substituted our idea of what a great life would be for God's great plan for you. There are billions of people in this world who've never heard the name of Jesus and have other things in their life distracting them. And they, how can they believe if they've never heard and how can they hear if no one's ever gone? And it doesn't have to be the ends of the world, guys. In California alone, there are more non-Christians in California than there are people in Canada. Let me, let me say that again. There are more non-Christians in the state of California than there are people in Canada. You can add the bear and moose population to that, and there are still more lost people, unsaved, living lives in darkness in California. Guys, we're doing such a poor job of sending people to the ends of the earth. God is sending the people from the ends of the earth to us. What is Christ turning on its head in your life to stop you being distracted from his love and his great plan for you? Let's pray. Father, we come before you Lord, prayerfully with conviction. Lord, prayerfully having engaged the truth of who you are, no longer seeing that you're driven by emotion or this all-accepting love for everyone, but that, Lord, you're devoted and you're driven by a passion for the truth of who you are as defined by the scriptures you've given us. Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts during this time, that we could honestly stop shrugging 
off the truth of who you are and what you've called us to and substituting that with these distractions. Lord, would you cleanse the temple of our minds and replace that vacancy with your spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.